We are very pleased to present Avital Ronel's survival kit for the anguish. Avital Ronel is professor at the New York University, and since January 2020, she's invited by the Rencontre Philosophique de Monaco as guest philosopher in residence, a prolific author internationally known in the fields of philosophy, German literature, comparative literature. We are very pleased and we hope you enjoy Avital Ronel's survival kit for the anguished. Hi everyone, what's up? Already a spectral charge with a lethal hold on us. The pandemic is rerouting through the world, returning and spiking, delivering a punch that comes and goes, releases and seizes upon us again, leaving us in the tremors of uncertainty, at the mercy of bloated egos, in some cases, and governmental mishandling in far too many cases. It makes me want to scream. We are sending out power pills to those in India, Guyana, Africa, and Germany, while wishing solace and sanity for the US. Encore un effort, les Américains. Lately, we've been thinking about the comorbidity of racism and the virus, pathologies on the aggressive upswing. Last time I cracked an egg and brought Artaud into the picture, sketching the collective exorcism he ascribes to the plague, our viral sniper on the loose. I meant to include Poe, Edgar Allan Poe, and his text in particular, though quite a few qualify as, as viable candidates for this kind of reading exercise, but I especially wanted to pull up and focus on the mask of the Red Death and also read the red, having read red and read um, through some of the um, color coding ascribable to the virus and also to the MAGA hats that the weirdos in Trumpville wear. So the, the color red has a history that Benjamin indicates that we can continue to consider on a um, split screen as it were. But last week I, I failed to include Poe and I'll put him up for grabs on another occasion. The disjunctive manner of queuing up instead of Poe, for God's sake, Humpty Dumpty's fall with the introduction of Artaud's theatrical abscess gave me pause afterwards, made me somatize, head, stomach, chills, the whole enchilada of somatic outbreak and corporeal protest. I was down for the count. How can one's work to which one is irreversibly committed make one sick and make one sick in a non-cathartic, un-Greek, un-geek way? So um, I'd open a track now for a consideration of terror without catharsis, which is something that La Coulabarque started pursuing 
And I would want to think about this in terms of the no interest uh, terror factor, the fear factor, without catharsis, with no savings, with no redemptive moment or messianic sweep. So what would terror without a purge, without a little tiny moat of hope for some sort of payback in a positive way um, offer? So sometimes, you know, I think I go too far. I'm not the only one who thinks so. But in terms of my capacity to hold it down, this going too far, but where is too far? What does that mean too far? What kind of limits or frontiers are implicated in the sense of having gone too far? In my case, I don't think it's a caprice or a sign of language loss necessarily or telic anxiety when the goalpost keeps moving. So telic anxiety refers us to telos or a goal and the positing of, of a limit or a goal. So what does it mean to go too far? And this is one of the questions that little Antigone, Gretchen, and other um, very welcome, necessary um, activists keep asking us. Um, in my case, going too far is an occupational hazard, if not a duty-bound requirement that has been made it at me or of me. Or I could characterize it as the call I'll take, declining other kinds of call to action and language. Plus, as I indicated last week, it would be obscene to norm up and tranquilize in times of social indecency. Let others offer smooth interpretations of what might be a world-class trip-up, fuck-ups that we're um, bombarded by. Still, you know, I think I could be maybe less grating, but I'm not so sure. A Puerto Rican poet wrote to me asking that I forget my electronic bracelet, the layers of encumbering surveillance under which I squeak as a descendant of Kafka's Josephine, queen of the mouse folk. Now, I squeak, I peek, I talk, I, I sometimes, my voice seems to squint or bear the brunt of a difficult maneuver. Um, sometimes I imagine that I can break into song, not sure I can sustain that. And then it makes me think about the music that is backup or telic anxiety for any kind of speaking engagement. In the history of music, some minorities are seen as grating, degrading noisemakers. Just read Wagner on Jewish static disturbing his musical line. The musical prejudices against all kinds of screechers among God's creatures. Sonic signatures are important for us to bear in mind no matter how minimalist or discreet an utterance or a delivery of speech might seem. Their capacity to broadcast and accompany 
mood swing and dig archaically, drum out rhythm and toxins, especially through the pandemic drop and draft, have called on us to reflect music, our primal source and signature, and also, as I always want to consider the undertones and um, hidden aspects of what we're discussing or the not so popular on the charts kinds of um, manifestations such as they are, let's, why not, uh, to the degree that we're addressing an Anglo-American um, population with the emphasis on pop, um, let's consider um, high school bands and military bands drumming out dissidents. So some phrasing off the charts may snake it, snake in, or sneak in, marking the dissonance of mitzai. So it's not the case simply that military bands and high school bands or minority um, interventions into what we think we understand by music, beginning with all sorts of primordial um, upbeats and Nietzschean apersus. Let's um, consider that music has a particular way of accompanying our Dasein, our Mitzein, especially in times of, of impoverished being. So I'm going to give uh, a dot, dot, dot to that, it, it elliptically leave it hanging in the air, in the aria that I wanted to, to sing for you. As Arto was retching in unstageable horror with his signature antics and special effects of revulsion, I was worried but hooked by the possibilities that his retching unleashed. He had me at cat cataclysme et debacle. How do we get a grip on what evades representation, theoretical uh, thought, and conceptual arrest? But Artaud, because he doesn't spare us in terms of sentiment or thought, but really throws up all over the stage as his production that he wants us to, with a sense of, of um, necessity, and even in a weird way, destinal breakup or intrusion. He wants us to, um, to see the unseeable, what, what withdraws from our gaze and nonetheless, calls upon us to think. I was taken by the revulsion in which Artaud rolls, but rather than offer to get an analytical handle on the way revulsion plays out in times of domination by affliction, the threat of illness and the force of contagion, the spread of rumors and viral that, um, co-create and belong to each other, the way rumors are spread and the virus spreads without a pinnable author or programmable run or itinerary. All these increasing velocities of anguish 
try try to talk to speak to us in a way in ways that are not necessarily accounted for in mainstream philosophical thought or recognizable theoretical probes though one can't say that they are outside the scope of what has been offered as degraded but essential inescapable objects of contemplation trying to think of the knockout punch that's coming at you um, what kind of a, an experience of danger is that something that's about to come to you or maybe is not addressed to you but nonetheless punches you out in any case i decided to turn my gaze elsewhere at least obliquely elsewhere because sometimes when you're trying to uh, think about things and you put yourself on a schedule or you're trying to get a handle on a real problem that is not necessarily philosophically um, sustainable, sometimes it's like you're in a rodeo. You try to hang on to the bucking beast ever about to be thrown off, your head bobbing. My attention tried to hang on to the revulsion that Arto evokes, but also rises from. And revulsion is a major topos or theme in, in Edgar Allan Poe as well. What gives you the creeps? What gives you the, the chills? There's a, a frontier between revulsion and horror, which is a genre by now, of course, as you all know. And it would be um, very um, compelling to, to go through the different modalities of fear, terror, horror, revulsion, wretchedness, and so on and so forth, that are part of um, life's untotalizable messiness or um, things that, that we prefer not to deal with. So as a genealogist trained by Nietzsche and put through my paces by Derrida, I wondered about the values and urges that are responsible for our revulsion or what kind of insect repellents do we take recourse to when we feel invaded by different forms of demonic um, anguish or insect-like um, micro-persecutions that aren't so uh, micro after a while. So what, what's the, at the origin that uh, of, of our extreme sense of revulsion, if, if we could think about it, um, I think we might get somewhere. Um, if you think about a repulsive figure like some of the um, some of the so-called leaders of populist movements and the so-called world, soon I recognized that the question had to be turned on its head. In fact, one might ask, when did we stop? the sentiment or bodily lurch 
of revulsion, the nearly primordial revolt when something makes you want to puke. And um, what is that experience or prompt that makes us want to um, rid ourselves cathartically um, as part of a healing crisis, but nowadays without healing. And this is the, um, the theme of telic anxiety that I brought to the table today. So I was um, led to remember Freud's example of overcoming revulsion, which I think could prove instructive for us. And in this little vignette or explanation that he offers, he's describing the formation of the superego, so your internal tribunal, but also the seat of your enjoyment. Um, and basically, his example, and here we would have to consider in a sidebar, which we won't um, linger at, what. When does an example um, swallow an example or, or actually exemplify or allegorize the constitution of the object you're trying to um, construct, explain, describe, and lose in some cases? So Freud's example is maybe surprisingly um, but not so surprisingly because it has to do with a kind of um, infantile or young self in grooming, who's booming. And Freud tracks the way a young person might hate and re reject something like spinach. Now in those days, we're not talking about the salad days of spinach, or the transvaluation of spinach by a figure such as Popeye the Sailor Man, which some of you may be too young to have been subjected to, but in which as a wartime exhortation, spinach becomes transvalued into the source of musculation, power pumping, libidinal um, um, acuity, and the ability to militarize the body. He's a sailor man and um, he goes after an enemy figure um, who's a little out of shape. Nonetheless, if we followed the history and sagas and mythic qualities of spinach, there's something about it that is slimy, mucousy, and repellent to a child. Freud's um, Freud's example asks or shows how this slimy vegetable uh, intrusion that a child normally rejects very violently, how does it come to the point in the adult that one actually loves spinach? So how does a formerly despised and revolted or revolting object that you incorporate, that you interject, that you eat and swallow, um, how does it become something you desire? And how does it, in fact, 
um, become a prime sample in your preferred menu. So for Freud, this kind of metamorphic uh, leap and break from a despised object to something you want and desire um, follows and describes the formation of the superego, something that makes what was originally punishing and reviled actually desirable. This, this should alert us only to the point that um, we want to make about, um, about what it is that, that makes us, you know, desire the very thing that is also disgusting to us. Now for Freud, there's a, a movement and a history and a changeover, but for some lesbian writers, for Bataille, for others, the changeover isn't secured or guaranteed, but could co-inspire um, um, simultaneous um, excitability so that desire and disgust, which is a very important aesthetic uh, category that Kant has to deal with as well. He, he has to set aside disgusting objects. So where you have desire and disgust, certain exclusionary operations are sometimes called for if you wanna keep it clean and make sense. But for those who don't simply want to make sense and systematize and not allow for chance or, or wild savage contingency, allow things to coexist in problematic uh, life forms, death forms. And in this case, um, you might realize that um, there's a kind of revulsion that is also akin to ecstasy to desire, to something that's a limit experience. Now, to, to recoil a little and, and retreat from that level of intensity, uh, one could also return to the disgust and revulsion that children commonly express without necessarily um, convulsing, but sometimes they do. And then there's even, believe it or not, an ethical precinct of revulsion so that um, children who have been traditionally crowded out of philosophical precincts, as we've discussed before, readily express their repugnance, which is also an effect of contagion. And one of the utterances that, that accompany that is um, actually an ethical one or pre-ethical or primordially, um, see, that went um, out the door, a primordial um, instigation of something like ethics and justice for all already in the infantile um, experience of repugnance when a child will cry out, it's not fair. So um, there are many complicated itineraries that I wanted to fast track, and maybe again, this acceleration is not palpable or 
quite as delicious as one would have wanted to serve it up as. But what I wanted to move toward are also the, um, the histories of aquatic texts, texts that cry, that cry out, the krie krie, the schreiben schrei that Heidegger and Derrida um, point out to us. Or in the words of um, Werner Hamacher, the relatedness of theory and theory, crying, the tears, the tears of children who see an injustice and are shaken to their little cores by it and express repugnance and reject the unfairness, usually first ego bound unfairness, but also the contagion in theory of those who witness others crying so that the whole um, collectivity of childlike vulnerabilities are attacked and have the effect of and the drift of contagion when they see the affliction of one of them or among one of them. I remember after 9-11, someone started crying in a bus and then another person started crying in New York and then practically the whole bus started crying. So the driver came on the, um, on the, on the microphone and he, he um, on the loudspeaker and he said, I'm gonna pull the bus aside and we'll have a collective cry. He, he didn't say collective, he said, we'll all cry together. And the whole bus burst into one big teary of tears. And at a certain moment, the driver said, are we ready to move on and go on? And someone said, can we have another minute, please? So we all cried again. And the sobbing subsided at a certain moment. And the bus rolled on. So um, once again, it's a question of automobility, mobility, um, shared grievance and affliction, which is what uh, Artaud was showing us in different ways, of course, in much more um, cataclysmic tones, though we're not far from a cataclysm and, and we need to uh, be aware of that. Of course, we're going through or not, but we are, um, incorporating, rejecting, revolted at the different pathologies of difficulty that, that are addressing us. So um, I wanted to say that there's another type of purging or catharsis that is legally bound that might be pertinent today because we're celebrating James Joyce in Monaco and Paris, we're celebrating the completion of Ulysses. And I want to remind you that Ulysses was censored and outlawed in the United States. And I would urge you to read the legal case that allowed him to allow the text to re-enter the United States without penalty because there's a lot of, one of our tracks is about who can enter or is not invited to enter. And now Europe doesn't want Americans entering 
the EU, EU. And um, so let's remember that when Joyce's um, work was censored and, and calumnied, the judge uh, asked three of his uh, trusted and judicious friends to read the text. And he said, you know, they weren't aroused erotically. So they only felt like they had an, they only felt the emetic effect of the text. In other words, reading James Joyce made these honorable gentlemen uh, want to throw up, which apparently, according to this judgment, that's okay. If a, if a text makes you want to throw up, welcome to America, you can come in. But if it sexually should arouse you and seem obscene to you, it will continue to be blocked at the border. This would be a little allegory for us to consider about what it is that the law allows, the relation of disgust to legality, question of frontiers and boundaries, and the invention also of disgust, not only as something that impugns and degrades uh, forms of otherness that won't be swallowed suddenly, but always, there's always an ugly history here, uh, by certain clusters of Americans but a disgust that also hides a desire, a much more complicated relation to the very thing eliminated, cracked open, shattered, violated, and disturbed in its being. Listen, everyone, be very careful, be safe, and remember that we're not afraid to do the work it takes to swim through the sewerage of our present day. Take care, bye.